Hello, and I want to welcome you to our next study, our next podcast on the end times. In this podcast and the next one, we'll be looking at the book of Zephaniah. But before we start digging into our end times study, I'd just like to talk about our weekend we had at our church this past weekend. It was the one-year anniversary of the chartering of our church, and we thankful for the Lord for that. Thankful the Lord placed us there in Palm Coast. And we also had our highest attendance. We had a bunch of visitors come this past Sunday morning. And so it was an exciting day in the house of the Lord, exciting day at New Beginning Baptist Church this past Sunday. And as we've been going over the golden rule of Bible prophecy, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, but take every word at its primary literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context clearly indicate otherwise. And like we've mentioned before, we've broken down our study through the end times in different sections. We had our introductory material, we've covered that. And then we had the second section, which we titled The Plot Line of Bible Prophecy. That was basically an overview and map of the big picture of our study. We've gone through that. And now we're entering into the next section, which we've titled The Setting. And that's covering the places of the end times, the signs of the end times. And that would be primarily a study in the book of Zephaniah in Matthew 24 and 25. And we're starting that with this podcast. And then we're going to move on to the cast of characters. That's just getting to know the main individual actors of the end times. And then we're going to move on to the scaffolding and the structure. That would be the next section. That's mainly the timeline and and nation actors of the end times. That's mainly a, a study of the book of Daniel. And then we move on to the main narrative, and that's mainly a study of the book of Revelation. So let's start off our study in the book of Zephaniah. We've uh, titled uh, this message or this podcast, The Dark Side of Love in the Day of the Lord. And I'm going to read you uh, Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. So the dark side of love in the day of the Lord. The dark side of love in the day of the Lord. To start off with, uh, to illustrate a point, I'm going to read a story uh, from a commentary I was reading just the other day as I was preparing for this podcast and for this message. And the story goes like this. It was late at night in a suburban area. A child lay restless in her bed. A man with a very severe and stern look stealthily entered her bedroom and softly approached her bed. The moment the little girl saw him, a terrified look came over her face, and she began to scream. Her mother rushed into the room and went over to her. The trembling child threw her arms around her mother. The man withdrew to the telephone called someone who was evidently an accomplice, and in a very soft voice made some sort of an arrangement. Hastily, the man re-entered the room, tore the child from the mother's arms, and rushed out to a waiting car. The child was sobbing, and he attempted to stifle her cries. 
He drove madly down the street. He drove madly down street after street until he finally pulled up before a large, sinister, and foreboding-looking building. All was quiet. The building was partially dark, but there was one room upstairs ablaze with light. The child was hurriedly taken inside up to the lighted room and put into the hands of the man with whom the conversation had been held over the telephone in the hallway. In turn, the child was handed over to another accomplice, this time a woman, and these two took her into an inner room. The man who had brought her was left outside in the hallway. Inside the room, the man plunged a gleaming sharp knife into the vitals of that little child as she lay there as if she were dead. Now, your reaction at this point to that story, uh, maybe, uh, maybe something like this. I certainly hope they will catch that criminal who abducted that little girl and is responsible for such an awful crime. However, I have not described to you the depraved and degraded nature of a debased mind. I have not taken a chapter out of the life of a man on death row. I have not related to you the sordid and sadistic crime of a psychopathic criminal. On the contrary, I have described to you a tender act of love. In fact, I can think of no more sincere demonstration of love than that which I have described to you. I'm sure you are amazed when I say that. So let me fill in some of the details and then you will understand. You see, that little girl had awakened in the night with severe abdominal pain. She had been subject to such attacks before, and the doctor had told her parents to watch her very carefully. It was her father who had hurried into the room. When he saw the suffering of his little girl, he went to the telephone, called the family physician, and arranged to meet him at the hospital. He then rushed the little girl down to the hospital and handed her over to the family physician, who took her to the operating room and performed emergency surgery. Through it all, every move, and every act of that father was of tender love, was of anxious care, and of wise decision. I have described to you the dark side of love, but love, nevertheless. The father loved the child just as much on that dark night when he took her to the hospital and delivered her to the surgeon's knife, as he did the next week when he brought her flowers and candy. It was just as much a demonstration of deep affection when he delivered her to the hands of the surgeon, as it was the next week when he brought her home and delivered her into the arms of her mother. Love places the eternal security and permanent welfare of the object of love above any transitory or temporary comfort or present pleasure. Down here upon this earth, love seeks the best interest of the beloved. That is what this book of Zephaniah is all about, the dark side of love for the best interest of the beloved. There is a dark side of the love of God. He deals with us according to our needs. The great physician will put his child on the operating table. He will use the surgeon's knife when he sees a tumor of transgression or a deadly virus sapping our spiritual lives or the cancerous growth of sin. He does not hesitate to deal with us severely. We must learn this fact early. He loves us when he is subjecting us to surgery just as much as when he sends us candy and flowers and, and brings us into the sunshine. Sometimes the great physician will operate without giving us as much as a sedative. 
but you can always be sure of one thing. When he does this, he will pour in the balm of Gilead. When he sees that it is best for you and for me to go down through the valley of suffering, that it will be for our eternal welfare. He will not hesitate to let us go down through the dark valley, but he will also be there with us. He'll be there full of compassion. He'll be there full of mercy. He'll be there full of grace. This prophecy of Zephaniah presents for us a picture of the dark side of the love of God. He is a God of love. This is true and and often stated in our world today as, as a defense of sinful behavior. God is a God of love, but he is also a God of holiness. He is also a God of judgment. He's also a God of righteousness. And Zephaniah opens with the rumblings of judgment. And you will not find judgment enunciated in any more harsher manner than what is in this book. Uh, Two thoughts stand out in this brief book. Number one, the day of the Lord. That phrase occurs seven times in this little prophecy. This expression has particular application to the Great Tribulation period, which precedes the kingdom. But the day of the Lord also includes the kingdom. The Great Tribulation period is ended by the coming of Christ personally to the earth to establish the millennial kingdom, and all that is included in the day of the Lord. And number two is jealousy. Uh, This occurs twice in this prophecy. Uh, God's jealousy is on a little different level or plane than than my jealousy or, or your jealousy. In our jealousy, we may seek to do evil. God is jealous of those who are his own. He is jealous of mankind. He, he created mankind, and he has purchased a redemption for mankind, and he has made it possible for mankind to be saved. It is not God's will that any should perish. He wants all to be saved. He is a jealous God. He's jealous for all of mankind. He's jealous for our welfare. But when man does not turn to him, God is going to judge. God is glorified in judging as well as he is glorified in saving. Many people cannot understand how this is possible. Ezekiel chapter 38 to 39 speaks of the time in the future when God will judge Russia. We read there, And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. Ezekiel 38, 16. In other words, God is saying, I intend to judge this godless nation. And when I do, I shall be glorified in that judgment. That is a tremendous statement for God to make. And for a great many people, it is a hard pill to swallow. But it might be well for us to learn to think God's thoughts after him. Realizing that our thoughts are not his thoughts, and that our ways are not his ways. Now I'm going to read verses 2 to 3 again of Zephaniah chapter 1. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the air and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. Utterly consumed. 
utterly consumed. Notice here that the Lord said that he will consume all things from off the land. He will consume men. He will consume animals. He will consume the birds. He will consume the sea life. He also said he will cut off man from off the land. This is describing a near total and complete annihilation of all forms of life on the earth. In this passage, the Lord is directly addressing Judah, and in the time this was spoken was addressing the people of Judah and what he would do to their land. But as with many prophetic statements in God's word, this passage has its initial primary meaning to the people of Judah. But it also has its secondary prophetic meaning, and that is concerning what the Lord will do at the end of days during the tribulation to the entire globe. If you notice, a description of what the Lord will do to the life on this planet sounds eerily similar to what is spoken of in, in more detail in the book of Revelation. And that is because it is speaking in general terms of what will be spoken of more specifically in the book of Revelation. Amos chapter 8 verses 1 to 3 says this, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, The end is come unto my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith the Lord God. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. The end is coming. The end is coming. Get ready. The end is coming. Here's another passage with a double meaning. One is for Israel, and one is for the end times. God often used common objects to teach important spiritual truths. Objects like pottery, Jeremiah chapter 18 and 19, seed, Luke chapter 8, yeast, Matthew chapter 16, and in this text in Amos, a basket of summer fruit or a basket of ripe fruit. Just as this fruit was ripe for eating, the nation of Israel was ripe for judgment. So just as this fruit was ripe for eating, the nation of Israel was ripe for judgment. Just as fruit is ripe for eating, the world is now ripe for judgment. The Hebrew word translated summer in verse 1 is similar to the word translated end in verse 2. It was the end of the harvest for the farmers, and it would be the end for Israel when the harvest judgment came. It will be the end of the world as we know it when the harvest of the wrath of God descends upon this world. This age of the world we are currently in will end soon. We are in the summer. The fruit of man's iniquity and rejection of God is ripe. The harvest of the wrath of God is near. The harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we are not saved. Jeremiah 8:20. There comes a time when God's long suffering runs out. Isaiah 55, 6 to 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. When this tribulation judgment comes, there will be much weeping. There will be much wailing, and corpses will be thrown and found everywhere, and many not given proper burial. It will be a bitter harvest for the world and Israel. 
as what was sowed will finally be reaped. How many will come to the realization stated in Jeremiah 8.20? The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. Such a tragic thought. Now let's examine religious apostasy. Zephaniah 1 and verse 4. I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of the cherubims with the priests. Now the first step in a nation's decline is religious apostasy, a turning from the living and true God. And the second step downward for a nation is moral decay. And then the third step is political anarchy. I believe it is painfully obvious that the root problem in our country today is religious apostasy. The problem is that the church has failed to be the church. The church has failed to give God's message. The church has become self-help gatherings. They have become woke establishments. The church has become tolerant of sin and intolerant of truth. Let's go over those steps again. The steps in a nation's decline. First step, religious apostasy. I think we've seen that abundantly in America. The second step downward for a nation is moral decay. Again, I think we've seen that in abundance in America. And the third step in a nation's decline is political anarchy. And I believe we're seeing the beginning of that as well in our country. Now, the following is an excerpt from a newspaper editorial from several decades ago. And it is a major condemnation on the church, and things have only gotten worse since this was written. I believe this was in the late 70s, early 80s, but I'm not certain. Uh, the quote starts now. This betrayal of Christ in the name of Christianity is one reason for the moral and spiritual malaise with which this country is afflicted. The melancholy fact is that the churches no longer influence the development of national character. People go to church mainly because of an impulse to participate in a service of worship, not because of any spiritual guidance they expect from the clergyman. End quote. What a statement of condemnation this editorial was. This is true not just for our nation, but every nation. The historian Gibbon concluded that there were five reasons for the decline and fall of Rome. Now, this man was not a Christian, but here is what he says, or here is why he says Rome fell. Number one, the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis of human society. Number two, higher and higher taxes, the spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace. Number three, the mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming every year more exciting, more brutal, more immoral. Number four, the building of great armaments when the great enemy was within, the decay of individual responsibility. And number five, the decay of religion, fading into a mere form, losing touch with life, losing power to guide the people. Now, that's what this historian said were the Five Reasons Why Rome Fell. I think we could see those five reasons, those five symptoms in our own country. Now, this man, he wrote this list 
in the late 1700s as he studied Rome, and he said these were the five reasons why Rome fell. He wrote this list as our nation was being birthed, and now our nation seems to be described by this list he wrote in the 1700s, and our nation's pending demise seems described by this list. Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, And the name of the cherubims with the priests. Cherubims means black priests. It means priests that wore black garments. Have you ever noticed that those who engage in the worship of Satan today wear black garments? Those that engage in the worship of Satan in the past wore black garments. Those idolatrous priests, these priests that would pretend to worship the Lord, instead they were worshiping Satan. They wore black garments. Uh, does this remind us of anything today? Is there a religion today whose priests wear black garments? I want to take a moment now for us to just uh, study or, or take a, a quick look at the Church of Rome. Revelation chapter 17 verse 4 says, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. I'm going to read you something that's taken from our Sunday Visitor's Catholic Encyclopedia. It says, The color for bishops and other prelates is purple, for cardinals scarlet. The pectoral cross should be made of gold and decorated with gems. Let's read uh, Revelation 17, verse 4 again. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now, Revelation 17 and verse 6. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Uh, the History of the Rise and Influence of the Spirit of Rationalism in Europe, Volume 2, documents that the Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that has ever existed among mankind. And that fact should not be questioned by anyone who has a complete knowledge of history. Now let's read Revelation 17 and verse 6 again. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Historians estimate that during the Dark Ages and the Inquisition, the Roman Catholic Church killed over 50 million people whom they deemed as heretics, most of which were Christians who dared to own a Bible, which the Church forbid, or proclaimed the Gospel of Christ. At one event remembered as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, an estimated 100,000 Huguenots, Protestant Christians in France, were slaughtered. In Spain alone, the number of condemned exceeded 3 million, with about 300,000 burned at the stake during the length of the Spanish Inquisition. The great historian Will Durant wrote, compared with the persecution of heresy in Europe, from 1227 to 1492, the persecutions of Christians by Romans in the first three centuries after Christ was a mild and humane procedure. Millions of Christians were burnt at the stake by the Catholic Church. Revelation 17, verse 9. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. 
the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Strong's Greek Dictionary. Uh, Oros, a mountain, is lifting itself above the plain. Hill is not pointing to large mountains only, but to hills also. This is a well-known feature of the city of Rome. These seven mountains, or these seven hills. All the Latin poets for 500 years speak of Rome as the seven-hilled city. Rome is depicted on her imperial coins as sitting on seven hills. Rome was the great power of John's day, which is known for its seven hills or seven mountains, named Aventine, Caliine, Capitoline, Esquiline, Palatine, Coronal, and Viminal. Revelation 17, 9 again, and here is the mind which hath wisdom, the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And that Greek dictionary, the word for mountain, it means lifting itself above a plain. It could mean a hill, but it's not pointing to large mountains, but only to hills. Edwards was an American preacher and theologian who is perhaps best known for his role in the Great Awakenings of the mid-1700s. Commenting on the Roman Catholic Church in his History of Redemption, Jonathan Edwards stated, So that Antichrist has proved the greatest and most cruel enemy the Church of Christ ever had. Agreeable to the description given of the Church of Rome in Revelation 17 and verse 6. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Thus did the devil and his great minister Antichrist rage with violence and cruelty against the Church of Christ. And thus did the whore of Babylon make herself drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. That's in his book, History of Redemption, Jonathan Edwards, and he was speaking about the Catholic Church. Now, moving back to Zephaniah, let's look at a prepared sacrifice in verses 7 to 9. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests, and it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice, that I will punish the princes and the king's children, and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. In the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. A sacrifice has been prepared for the day of the Lord. In verse 7 is the first mention of the day of the Lord in the book of Zephaniah. The day of the Lord is presented here primarily as the time of judgment. That is primarily referring to the great tribulation. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests, verse 7. The guests are going to be the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is the judgment that is coming. The great day of the Lord is near. The great day of the Lord is near. Zephaniah 1, 14 to 16. The great day of the Lord is near, it is near, and hasteth greatly even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wastedness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers, the great day of the Lord. That is another way to identify the tribulation. The day of the Lord refers to the tribulation time period. Now, we can repeat the refrain of Zephaniah and sound out the warning. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. 
The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. We can say the same thing today that was said then. The time of the day of the Lord is near. It is at hand. It is rapidly approaching. The rapture is just around the corner. People need to get ready. The time of the wrath of God is coming. The time of the pouring out of the fierceness of the winepress of his wrath hasteth greatly. Now notice some descriptions of this great day of the Lord Zephaniah gives us. Mighty men, important men, political leaders, business leaders, Hollywood moguls, famous men and women of all stripes, the Bible says their success will do them no good. Their fame will do them no good. Their money and possessions will do them no good, for they shall cry bitterly. This day is a day of wrath. It is a day of great trouble. It is a day of great distress. This day is a day of utter desolation and wastedness, a day of global and indiscriminate destruction, a day of pain, a day of judgment. This will be a day of darkness, a day of thick darkness. Notice also this day will affect all people, whether they think they are safely protected in their fortified cities and dwellings. There will be no place to escape to for safety, no place to escape to for protection from God's wrath that is poured out in the great day of the Lord. Now Zephaniah 1, 17 to 18. And I will bring distress upon men, that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. The prophet's picture of the day of the Lord is that of a great battle. The description is a vivid one. You can hear the cries of the captives and the shouts of the warriors. You can, you can see thunderclouds of judgment and flashes of lightning. You, you can behold the victim's blood poured out like dust and their flesh as dung, verse 17. Or in other words, their entrails poured out. What a scene of destruction, what a scene of carnage. And all because the nation refused to submit to the word of the Lord. The fire of God's jealous zeal would consume everything, and no one would escape. Even the wealthy would not be able to ransom their lives, and the enemy would take away their ill-gotten gains. What Zephaniah described here in these verses is but an illustration of what will happen in the end times when God's judgment falls on a wicked world. Only that final day of the Lord will be more terrible than what Zephaniah describes here. There will be cosmic disturbances that will affect the course of nature and cause people to cry out for a place to hide. Amos 5.18, Amos 8.9, Joel chapter 2, Revelation chapter 6. And unless you know Jesus Christ as your own Savior, you will have no place to hide. Now, there is a warning given to us here in Zephaniah. It's a warning to seek the Lord before it is too late. Seek the Lord before it is too late. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired. 
before the decree bring forth before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek ye the Lord. All ye meek of the earth which have wrought his judgment, seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Seek ye the Lord. Seek righteousness. You know, our God is a God of mercy. He is a God of love. We have such a loving and merciful God. He is not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to repentance. He wants all to be saved. He does not want any to go through the great day of the Lord. He does not want any to have to experience the dark side of his love. He wants all saved from tribulation judgment again and again and again and again. He is calling man to repentance again and again, calling man to turn to him again and again, calling man to trust in him by faith and be saved. Joel 2.16 Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. The prophet Zephaniah closed this message with a plea for the people to repent of their sins and to turn to the Lord for his forgiveness. Like the prophet Joel that we just read, Joel 2.16, he told them to call a solemn assembly and seek the Lord. Zephaniah especially called upon the godly remnant, ye meek of the earth, Zephaniah 2 verse 3, to pray and seek God's face, perhaps referring to the promise found in 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. But even if the majority of the nation followed false gods and turned away from the Lord, God will still protect his own precious remnant when the day of judgment comes. Malachi 3, 16-18 Then they that feared the Lord spake, often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. God always has a remnant. Romans 11.5 Even so, then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Zephaniah and Jeremiah ministered during the same period in history, and both of them begged the rulers to trust God and turn from sin, but the kings, the officials, the priests refused to obey. God would have rescued the nation and at the last minute but the leaders were insensitive to God's call and disobedient to his word. But the Lord did spare a godly remnant that stayed true to him throughout the 70 years of captivity. Now let's look at that godly remnant. They were a godly remnant. They became the nucleus 
of the restored nation when they return to the land. In every period in history, it is the godly remnant that keeps the lights burning when it seems as if the darkness is about to cover the earth. Today, God needs a godly remnant. A godly remnant of concerned and set-apart believers who will walk the narrow road regardless of what others may do, uh, regardless of how others may criticize them for the way they walk that narrow road. Uh, they, we need that godly remnant that will obey God's word, that godly remnant that will share his gospel with the lost. In times of apostasy, in times of godlessness, we may wonder if there are any who still would hold tenaciously onto their faith and walk uncompromisingly with God. These are times of great unbelief and all kinds of false prophets parading the globe with their own versions of the hallowed gospel of Jesus. Paul cautioned Timothy about that. For the time will come, Paul said, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 This is very evident and rampant in our day, and it makes the words of Jesus even more urgent. But the hour cometh, and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. John 4, 23 in the midst of the godlessness in every generation, God has a hidden remnant that he brings out to accomplish his purposes. May we be part of the remnant of our time that God has hidden and reserved for his purposes. And that concludes our, our message, our podcast for today. Uh, next week, we'll come back and we'll revisit the book of Zephaniah. We'll finish studying the book of Zephaniah. And then after that, we'll move on to Matthew 24. 